over the years, I became less and less enthusiastic about that. So I actually wasn't doing very well financially, even as a lawyer, because my heart was not in it. And when I had that kind of crisis point moment on the staircase and decided to change my life, and I just thought like, what makes me happy? And it turned out like when I really did an inventory of this question, the things that made me happy were really simple things. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and today we bring you a guy who is near 40 and in horrific shape, and he transformed himself, not just into a fit and well guy, but into an elite and ultra-endurance athlete at the top of his game. From that, then, a guy who is massively inspiring hundreds of thousands of people with his journey. Rich Roll. You may know him from his top-ranked podcast, The Rich Roll Podcast. He is a world-renowned, plant-based, ultra-endurance athlete, highly in-demand public speaker, a wellness advocate, a best-selling author, and an inspirational hero to a global audience of wellness seekers as a transformational example of courageous and healthy living. It's just a great story. That's what we're going to dig in today. And really, the background story is after succumbing to just the setting Terry throws of overweight middle-agedness at the age of 40, he made a decision to overhaul his life. Why he made that decision, the catalyst for that is a big part of the story. And we start off pretty quick in the interview with that, but he adopted a plant-based diet and totally reinvented himself as an ultra distance endurance athlete. Just a few years later, he stunned the multi-sport community with top finishes at the Ultraman World Championships. It's a 320-mile, three-day, double Ironman distance triathlon, widely considered one of the most grueling endurance events on the planet. So he chronicled that journey in a book, Finding Ultra, Rejecting Middle Age, Becoming One of the World's Fittest Men, and Discovering Myself. It's an inspirational memoir of plant-fueled athletic prowess, and it quickly became a number one bestseller. In 2015, Rich and his vegan wife, Julie Platt, uh, released The Plant Power Way, a a plant-based cookbook and lifestyle primer for the active modern family. Well, the discussion was just, well, it was rich, pun intended, and I felt a real kindred spirit in Rich. And uh, from the authenticity he shares, just in his struggles that he's dealt with and still does today, and I think you're going to find a lot of inspiration in it. You can connect with Rich at Rich Roll dot com and uh, check out his new offering. It's meals.richroll.com. Really cool uh, help for those who are going, okay, I get the idea of his incredible diet. Sounds really hard to do. Well, he helps you do that. He and his wife, uh, again, meals.richroll.com. Uh, big thanks then to this sponsor who helped bring today's show to us. Then we'll dig in. All right, now, folks, I give you Rich Roll. All right, Rich, so I'm going to start from the top with just the the high point of the book or this, I guess, the, the, the culmination of it. I mean, you found yourself 39 years old, got your degrees, corporate lawyer, entertainment law firm, married three kids, dream house that you built, and then that fateful evening, I think you said it was about 2 a.m. in your home uh, after hours of TV junk food and you're winded going up these steps and went in. saw. I love that part of the story where you come in, see your wife, see your daughter and boom, you get hit with this, this vision that takes you into the future of looking at your daughter's 
wedding and the possibility of you not being there. And this, that I'm reading right out of the book. You said in that precise moment, I was overcome with the profound knowledge, uh, not just that I needed to change, but that I was willing to change. And it reminded me of what Donald Miller and his book that I love a million miles in a thousand years talked about. It's that inciting incident. So today about, I think 12 years or so later, as you've walked with so many other people, thousands of people, as you're helping them progress and have hopefully, well, well, that's the question. That was an awakening for you that, as you know, a lot of people never have. What do you do in your own teaching and influencing today to help people get to that point of awakening to even engage in the rest of what you have to offer? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I, I would preface my response to that. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. Pleasure to talk to you. Um, I would preface uh, my answer to that by saying that that uh, I think in certain respects, it's fair to say that sometimes life does boil down to these very specific moments of time, these little like ripples in, in the yeah. universe where everything kind of conspires to uh, catalyze change. And, and certainly I can point to two or three instances like that in my own life. Yeah. Um, and a, the staircase episode is certainly one of those. Um, but I think the linchpin in all of it was that it drove me towards this point of willingness. And I kind of make that point in the book, like it, it really is all about willingness. And in the work that, that I do trying to activate people and, try to inspire them to live healthier and provide them with the tools and the education. The one thing that I can't do is give them that willingness. That is a uh, self-driven, you know, internal kind of thing that you simply cannot will in another person and perhaps can't even be willed within yourself. Uh, It's a, it's a thing that's a, it's a very special sort of state of mind, uh, body and spirit that can, um, that you can leverage to change your life in super dramatic ways. But uh, it's, I don't know that it's something that can be summoned, you know, like that. Uh, so it gets tricky in terms of trying, I, I don't think that you need to be in pain or that you need to be, you know, hit some kind of rock bottom in order to change. But uh, willingness really is a gift. And if you have willingness, hold on to it because that's the superpower that can change your life in, in, in dramatic ways. Well, you mentioned the word activate and I like that as you are in your current work, do you find yourself speaking more to those who to some degree have been activated? They do have that willingness or do you find yourself drawn to wanting to get more people activated who are not? Hmm. Well, I would say that that my approach to the work that I do is is not to uh, I, I see myself less as a teacher and more as um, kind of a facilitator or a translator. So I do this podcast every week, uh, interview you know amazing people. I've been doing it for five years, and what I don't do in the course of that work is give people advice or tell them what they should or they shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. I share the experience of my guests and I share my own experience. And, and, you know, the intentionality behind that is to hopefully create an emotional connection with the listener where they hear something about my story or the story of a guest that they can connect with. And I think that storytelling is really the way to activate people in that regard. Um, You can tell people all day long, here's the 10 things you need to do to change your life. Most people 
may take a stab at it or they won't even really do it if they're not emotionally connected to it. Mm -hmm. So primary for me is always trying to create that emotional connection. And I try to do that through uh, authenticity and storytelling and simply sharing my experience and, and being open and vulnerable in that regard. Well, and you do that beautifully in the book, of course. Well, the next piece then, and again, right out of it, your quote, you said, uh, I understood that any true or lasting lifestyle change would require rigor, specifically specificity and accountability. Vague notions of eating better or maybe going to the gym more often just aren't going to work. And you say that you drew a line in the sand and you cite yourself as an extremist, which I, I relate to, but in your experience, does anybody really make much change without drawing some distinct line in the sand that may feel extreme to them and most other people around them? I think it's important to draw that line in the sand and say, you know, the road just got narrower. This is no longer okay with me. And in order for me to change, I need to make a decision. You know, a line in the sand is kind of like a, a metaphor for making a decision, yeah. a decision that, that, uh, that you're entering into a new phase of your life. And I think that, trying to uh, get change to take a foothold in your life so that it has a shot at transforming your life and, and, and having some state of at least semi-permanence, it is important that, that uh, you know, this change that you seek in your life be specific and be time-bound and have all the kind of qualifications that allow you to, um, to, uh, uh, sort of quantify what it is that you're trying to do. So in the case of, of, of my, you know, my situation, the idea of saying, Oh, I need to go to the gym here and there. Maybe I should eat better. I mean, what do those things really mean? So I think to the extent that, you know, we're in the new year now and your listeners um, are trying to wrap their heads around the goals that they set for themselves and how they're going to go about achieving them. I think specificity is super important. Um, having an idea of what that ultimate end goal is, working backwards from that, creating those stepping stone goals, having accountability, building uh, community around that, and holding yourself you know, truly accountable in a positive and negative way to your community so that you are uh, sort of taking an insurance policy out on having the best possible chance of achieving the goal that you set for yourself. Well, in, in reading your book, I would be playing dumb if I didn't know somewhat the answer to this question that I'm going to ask. But, but for those listening who don't, who aren't aware of what you're doing, I mean, you started off this story with a very physically focused, uh, you know, initiative and how you were out of shape physically and yet, and how you changed that. But at that moment, when you look back again, now, how much of that, of that, of that beginning time and that ultimate change that I'm going to ask you more about was physical part of it. Was that just the catalyst for also getting the, you know, your soul on fire as well? Um, yeah, that's another great question. I mean, for me, it really is all spiritual. Um, it's been a spiritual journey from day one, but I sort of express myself, you know, in the physical realm in a way that most people don't. And so my transformation began with me trying to understand better how I could connect with my body, with myself physically, 
trying to better understand the equation between the foods that I was eating and how I was feeling and that impact on me, not just in a pure physical sense, like what is my waistline like, what are my energy levels like, but you know, how is this um, affecting my mental state, my emotional state, and of course my spiritual state. And I think the better that I began to treat myself and the more I kind of invested in this um, physical experience, this physical adventure that I was on, the more I began to expand spiritually. And the things that I've done in the ultra endurance world are really just manifestations of, you know, physical manifestations of this spiritual journey that I've been on to uh, live more authentically and kind of in line with my, with my truest self to, for lack of a better phrase. Well, so in that, I'm curious. So as you look towards the next year and your next events, how much of your personal motivation is focused on that event and the achievement of a certain time or a certain placement in that and how much of it is, it's just, it's just one of the ongoing ingredients in your personal evolution. That's the wholeness of you, not just that event. Yeah, I, uh, that has shifted. I would say that back in 2009, 2010, it was very much about trying to, you know, push the, the, the envelope, the outside envelope of my, you know, physical, mental, emotional capabilities to see truly like where that boundary is for myself. And what has happened in the process of doing that and sort of sharing that adventure is, is that uh, it, it has turned out that it became a story that people were interested in. It's inspired other people and it's given me this platform to now um, help activate uh, a similar journey in other people. And so now fast forwarding, you know, five, six years down the line, uh, my participation in these events is, is truly just an extension of my personality. It's what I love doing. I love the lifestyle. I love the training. I like pushing myself. But I'm 51 now, so I'm not under any illusion that I'm going to, you know, be at a at a world ranked level in any of these endeavors. It's just an extrapolation of myself. Yet at the same time, I try to, you know, use these events and the training to help people understand that the limitations that they place on themselves uh, are probably um, um, illusory. So I hadn't competed in about five years until this past September. And I got back into competition because I turned 50 and I realized that that milestone of being 50 years old is an opportunity to kind of show the world like, Hey, just cause you're 50 doesn't mean you have to hang it up. I'm going to go do this crazy event in Sweden and I can show people through my experience, through my participation in that, that uh, it's possible to still remain vital and active and competitive and strong and all of these things into this phase of life. So when I look at the physical things that I do, you know, honestly, now at 51, like, does anyone, does it really matter how fast I can ride my bike or run? Like, I, I don't really think that it does. I don't have anything to prove to the world or to myself. My focus and my motivation these days is how can I be of maximum service to the people that are tuning into my frequency to hear what I have to say? And that comes through the podcasts and the books and the public speaking and, you know, the retreats and all these things that we do. Um, but, you know, every once in a while to do a race, I think has a place in that conversation because it shows in a very demonstrable fashion, like, Oh, Hey, this isn't just talk. Like I actually go out and can do these things and, and people can derive from, 
you know, my experience in that world, you know, something that they can take back and, and incorporate into their lives to be, to be better, to live healthier. Well, I appreciate the 50 year old thing. My kids keep trying to get me to do a ninja warrior competition or something. I said, you know, I'm going to wait till I'm like 50 or 55. It'll be more impressive with less competition for guys my age. So, uh, I, I dig that. How do you, how do you see, I'm curious how you see yourself, uh, these days with, I asked the same question to, uh, uh, Tim Weinmayer, um, uh, you know, in his feats, does he look at himself as uh, Eric Weinmayer? Sorry. Uh, as, are you an athlete? Are you a businessman? Are you an influencer? Would you, when you look at the overall title, maybe I should ask this, what are your kids? What are your kids called dad? What does he do? Oh, uh, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, they, they don't care what I do. They just make fun of me. You know, if people stop me on the street and want to talk to me about the podcast, they just roll their eyes. <laughs> so, you know, nothing impresses them. I, you know, they just call me dad yeah. um, in terms of how I, how I think of myself, I always struggle with this. You know, I do a lot of different things and I try not to allow myself to be defined by mm-hmm. any one of those things that I do. But I, I would probably say that, um, you know, when I'm filling out the, the customs card, when I'm going through customs, when I'm traveling, you know, you have to write down your occupation. You got to write something yeah, down, yeah. right? Yeah. I usually write because I, writer, you know, writer is probably the, the biggest thing that I do. But yeah, I'm an athlete, I'm a podcaster. Um, you know, I, I think of myself as uh as somebody who is just trying to share the experience of life that i'm having with other people and hopefully um uh, you know providing a way for other people to extract from the messaging that i put out there uh something that they can uh build into their own lives in a positive way well back to that question just on the physical aspect of your work i've got uh, i'm trying to reach them here i've got all the stickers that came with the uh i guess the press kit with with you from you and, and plant powered you know and you have so much focus and you've got a lot of your new initiatives that are nutrition based and, and such so again in looking at your voice, your podcast, this huge audience, obviously physical health is a big deal. And I relate to you, uh, extremely well there. I don't know if I, I like to find myself saying, I don't know if I, I would say the health and wellness of my physical being is most important, but it feels like it's sequentially first. Cause without that, nothing else works. So I have a huge importance on that. But when you look at it, you feel like I am out to help the, the American public or the global public get healthier in mind, body, spirit, or is that, again, just a catalyst for getting them to pursue their own journey of purpose and worth? I would say it's the latter. Uh, but I think the conversation around food and nutrition and physical health is, uh, is like a very um, powerful first portal that mm-hmm. is very welcoming and easy, very accessible for people to understand that gets them through the door. And then I can capture their attention by talking about the impact of foods on health and talking about the physical things that I've been able to accomplish and, and getting people to rethink their own capabilities, uh, you know, physically, uh, helping them to understand that some of the conventional wisdom that you've heard out there around food and nutrition and and physicality uh, might might be worthy of questioning. And once I have them their captive attention, um, and I have uh, and I have them kind of moving forward on some of my ideas and experiencing success, then it's like the lights come on, and then I've got them right where I want them, where they're more open 
to hearing about the bigger journey ahead, which is that journey towards greater self-actualization, that, that journey to you know, unlocking somebody's spiritual connection with the universe, their greater responsibility to the planet, and all of these other um, things that I think are very important and, and, and really essential and, and the foundation of what I'm trying to talk about. But sometimes you got to just talk about like, hey, what does dinner look like? Like, what are you eating for dinner? What, what are you having for breakfast? You know, like mm-hmm. sometimes that's where, where it begins. And that's fantastic. Well, so on the aspect of food, and I appreciate that your story in the book, you have, you understand addiction uh, and you've dealt with that with in the past with drugs and alcohol. So today, just in looking at food, the average American fair grocery store uh, stuff, not to mention, you know, of course, fast food and stuff, but even just the, uh, the average American fair, where do you put food on the addiction scale? I think that food addiction is very real. Um, I think the word addiction gets thrown around very cavalierly. Like it's very easy to say like, oh, I'm a chocoholic or I'm a shopaholic or I'm addicted to this TV show. Um, but real addiction is a very different thing. And as somebody who's been in recovery for alcoholism for a number of years and somebody who's very um, involved in the recovery community in Los Angeles and somebody who's lost a lot of friends mm to addiction, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a life or death thing. Um, and I think that there are millions of people who are addicted to food, not just people who struggle with eating disorders, but people who are just making choices three times a day about the foods that they're putting in their mouth without even being consciously aware of what's impulsing them to do that. And if you kind of take a 10,000 foot view on health in America, it's a pretty dire picture. I mean, we're such a prosperous nation. We have everything at our fingertips. You go to the grocery store, these things are they are massive and everything is available to you. And yet 70% of Americans are obese or overweight. Um, one out of every three people is gonna die of heart disease. Like one out of every three, it's crazy. And they're predicting that by 2030, 50% of Americans are going to be diabetic or pre-diabetic type 2 diabetes. These are epidemics of our era. So what is going on? Well, it's the food. You know, it is this, um, this explosion in our obsession with processed foods, with sugar, with fat, and with these uh, very large food companies that are spending billions of dollars every year to specifically concoct foods that activate the pleasure centers in our brain that make it impossible for ju- for us to just eat one chip. And so the average American is not eating fruits and vegetables. They're basically eating processed crap most of the time. And it is literally killing millions and millions of people every single year. And so, you know, I was one of those people. I was a junk food addict up until 39, had a health scare, had to really, you know, look at the habits that, um, had led me to that place. And it's opened up this world of discovery in the world of food and nutrition. And I'm trying to you know, get, get everyone else to wake up to this fact because it really is a life or death thing. When one out of every three people is dying of a heart attack, we need to change what we're doing. And, and, and it's not a small thing. 
So on that, and anybody who reads a book or knows you, you have an incredibly regimented uh, diet of you know whole foods, real food. Uh, I, uh, as Michael Pollan would say, actual food, which most of it is, uh-huh. is not, of course. So I'm curious though, as a guy who is in a sa- similar wavelength though, I still struggle with, I have a vice or two here and there. So for me, it's coffee and, uh, and wine, which I know you don't do, uh, there, but what are your, what are your vices today that have changed from 12 years ago? Uh, I, I have so many vices, <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> you know, I think, <clears throat> I mean, first of all, to your point about my diet being very regimented. Yeah. I'm, I'm plant-based hundred yeah. percent plant-based. I don't eat any animal products, but I don't think of it as being super uh, difficult to do. I've been doing it for 11 years now. I hardly give it a second thought. I love it. I love the foods that I eat. I enjoy my food. I eat lots of food. So it's not like this crazy deprivation thing. Um, and it's, you know, it's taken time to acclimate to that, but you know, I've never felt better and I would recommend you know everybody check it out. Yeah. Uh, aside from that, in terms of vices, yeah, I have, pl- I have plenty of vices. I mean, look, as somebody who, who is a recovering alcoholic, uh, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that when you take the drugs and the alcohol away from the addict, uh, the drugs and the alcohol weren't the problem. They were the solution. When you mm-hmm. take them away, you're left with the problem which is somebody who suffers from the disease of alcoholism and without their favorite outlet, uh, the drugs or the alcohol, alcoholism can express itself in all kinds of, you know, negative behavior patterns and habits and, and circular thinking. And and so that's really the thing that I'm always trying to keep at bay and, and work on. You know, I'm somebody who left to my default state. I'm lazy. I have poor self-esteem. I have poor social skills. Uh, you know, I like to isolate, I'm a control freak, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. I want to, uh, I want to like, uh, uh, talk about how nobody else knows how to do it. Right. You know, somebody who, who can simultaneously think that I have more to offer than everybody and also feel like I'm a piece of garbage and shouldn't say anything. I, I have a lot of like, you know, mental baggage that I have to work through and a lot of things I have to do every single day just so I can get my head straight and be a productive member of society. Well, so on that talking about, oh, back to the beginning over that fateful night in 2006, I believe with you in such a bad place and you talk about reinventing your life. When you look back now, granted we get to all say that we've, you know, we've never arrived, but to a degree of the life that you live now from that point to the lifestyle that you live now, how long did it take for Ritual to reinvent his life? It took a long time. Uh, I mean, if you research me or Google my name on the internet, it makes it sound like I snapped my fingers and changed my life overnight. It was all grand, you know, and I I could tell you that it was, you know, from, you know, the story didn't begin at age 39 on that staircase, like it began with me getting sober at 31 Mm. and realizing like, Hey, I'm not real. I don't think I'm really living the life that I want to be living, you know? And that, that was probably the first instance of me starting to think for the very first time, like, what is it that I want to do? What is the kind of life that I want to live? And it took, it's taken me, it's only now starting to really, uh, you know, take shape at age 50, 51. So it was really like 20 years, I would say. But over the last 10 years, you know, my life has changed dramatically from being a a very unhappy, um, semi-depressed corporate lawyer uh, who had the privilege of 
a fantastic education, but also felt trapped within the construct of you know what you're supposed to do when you have had that privilege. And as a trained lawyer, I couldn't see my way out of out of that world to anything else that I could do that could make me happy. And I could not have you know whiteboarded. Uh, the, you know, what has transpired because what I get to do now is not the result of me making some grand design and setting about a plan to achieve it. It's really been an organic, um, very slow, uh, you know, one step forward, two steps backward kind of thing of being super present um, and trying to work on myself internally as much as possible so that I can make the best decisions when they presented themselves. And sometimes that's called luck. And I think luck has played a big part in it. Um, but it's really just been about showing up and trying to, um, you know, do what resonates uh, the best with me without concern for financial reward or, um, you know, or how, how this will be you know, received by my family or the public, but really just trying to trust and learn about my own instincts. So you just mentioned financial rewards. Speak to that because just as you say the myth or the, the easily perceived myth that you just decided one day to change and you changed and that was it, that it took a long time in the same way you were not some uh, financially independent guy who could just become an ultra endurance athlete overnight no, no, no. and leave the rest. Cause I think that's the first thing you, you think of when you start reading the book is like, hey, how do you do that? When you have work, you have marriage, uh, you have parenthood, you have a mortgage, you had all of those things So talk a little bit about, uh, about that piece of it. Yeah, I had all those things and it was absolutely terrifying all that I, and, and we came, you know, look, we had to go through an incredibly difficult period of time. We lost a lot of stuff and we were 48 hours away from having our home taken away from us. Like I risked a lot, you know, I risked everything, but you know, to kind of contextualize it, I was a corporate lawyer. I was doing, I, I had been at big corporate law firms. I was making really good money. That became after a number of years of sobriety, that became intolerable to me. I just couldn't do it anymore. So I left, I started my own little practice and over the years, I became less and less enthusiastic about that. So I actually wasn't doing very well financially, even as a lawyer, because my heart was not in it. And when I had that kind of crisis point moment on the staircase and decided to change my life, and I just thought, like, what makes me happy? And it turned out, like, when I really did an inventory of this question, the things that made me happy were really simple things. Like, what does it feel like to, you know, oh, I like how the sun feels on my back when I'm trail running at dawn, or I like the sound of my breath. You know, I, I, I had taken so much pleasure from my experience of being a competitive swimmer as a young person, and I missed that. And I wanted to reconnect with that again. It, did, it wasn't like a business plan. It was just, this is something I need more in my life. Yeah. And so I started to connect with that. One thing led to another. And I realized like, oh, there's things that I would like to express in this world. There was no way that you can make any money doing any of these things. And the more I got invested in like training for these crazy races, the less I was paying attention to my career as a lawyer. We start to financially suffer. And, you know, there were plenty of times where I thought, this is crazy. What am I doing? This makes no sense at all. Like we had cars repossessed. We couldn't pay for our garbage to be removed at times like there were it was very very difficult and my wife to her credit 
when I would reach these breaking points and say, this is ludicrous. You know, I need to get a lot, you know, go back to a big law firm and take care of this, like a responsible head of household. She would say to me, no, you cannot do that because that is fundamentally not who you are. I know you're struggling with what you're going to do with your life, but the way you're going to find the answers to this is to continue to pull this thread that you're pulling because I like the person that you're becoming. So there's something here and you're going to have to um, have faith and, and trust on a level that you've never had to in the past. And together we will figure this out. And, you know, true, true to her word, that has been the case, but not without a lot of, you know, pain and, and very difficult moments along the way. Okay. Well, that's a huge testimony for your wife. And of course you talk about that in the book to what a significant uh, part of your journey she is, man. Again, I can, I can relate. I was a pro cyclist who quit when I had a kid with some medical problems. And two years later, my wife bought me a bike and said, please go train. You're just a better man. You're a better man. <laughs> when you do. Word says, Would you please go ride your bike <laughs> yeah. and don't talk to me until you're done because you're just a nicer person. There you go. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> well, yeah, I would say, let me just make this one yeah, other yeah. point, which is you know, even after, okay, so I, you know, kind of fast forwarding a little bit here, but you know, I go and I have some success in this ultra endurance world. I'm able to compete at a pretty high level. And the fact that I was doing it as a vegan athlete got a bunch of attention. People were interested in that story. And it never occurred to me that this would be something that anyone would care about. It was just something I was doing for myself, but it turned out that there was a lot of interest. CNN allowed me to write a, a blog post that ended up on their homepage because it was tracking so well. They came and interviewed. I got all this attention and that led to a book deal. Um, and I got a really nice advance for somebody who's a first time uh, author. Uh, but, you know, as anybody who's written a book knows, like those, those advanced dollars don't go very far. They're spread out. You, you pay an agent, they get spread out over a period of two years in installments. And when you have four kids and a mortgage, like that's not cutting it, right? So even with the success of getting that book deal, of writing that book, of that book being successful initially when it came out five years ago, um, it still didn't solve the financial conundrum that I was in. And the podcast that I began five years ago, short, you know, sort of after several months after that book came out, was a way of just, okay, what's next? You know, this is my next creative thing. And again, there was no financial plan with that either. And I did that for two years before the audience size was big enough to monetize it in any substantial way. And now it's one of the biggest revenue generators for me, um, but it didn't start that way. And I had to do a tremendous amount of work to get it to that point to where it is now. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's the, that's the behind the scenes nitty gritty that people need to hear. You know, you talked about, if we look again, just at this life change, you made a statement in there that whatever plan you spoke it to us, to the audience, you know, whatever plan for change that you adopt, it needs to be sustainable. Tell me why you wrote that in there. Because if it's not sustainable, then it's not going to have a lasting impact on your life. And, and I, you know, I write that and say that to remind myself because as somebody who's prone to extremes, you know, as a recovering alcoholic, as somebody who likes to go and do these crazy races, um, you know, I like to push it to the edge. And, and what I've had to learn the hard way is that when I'm doing that, um, that's something that's not sustainable because it's so extreme that, that 
you know, five years from now, I'm not going to be able to maintain that pace. So, you know, learning a sustainable model for what I do, whether it's the podcast or writing books, I have to build teams around that and learn to let go of trying to control every aspect of it that uh, I can fit it into the construct of my busy life and all the other things that I'm doing so that I can perpetuate my ability to um, you know, produce work over the long haul. And I think yeah. if you're not thinking about how this is going to work sustainably within the construct of your life, ultimately you're going to flame out. And I think, you know, look, we're in early January there's some crazy statistic, like 92% of the people that set New Year's you know, resolutions by January 15th, they've already abandoned them because they throw themselves in with such enthusiasm, but it's not sustainable because you can't sort of have that approach on a daily basis. As soon as something comes up that disrupts that, that routine, uh, you know, they're out the door. Yeah. So building sustainability and trying to figure out how to do um, something consistently, consistently, um, and regularly uh, is more important than making that big splash that you can only do once or twice a week. So past the, I think it was past the halfway mark in your book, you said, as you struggled to juggle everything, it came to mind. And I just I really appreciated this. Why are you doing this to yourself? And I adore your answer, which was initially, I don't know for sure. Um, but then, you know, not long later, you also had the revelation that you're being called to step into who you really are. And, it, and to me, it just spoke to the, you know, the journey that it wasn't necessarily just that means to an end that it was the, the, the journey itself that was the, was the point here. It was the goal. But again, just back to that, I felt like people, everybody's striving to do something different, to change themselves, to reinvent themselves to realize that whatever they're, gosh, I'm thinking out loud here, you know, you said you express yourself physically. So that was the muse in essence for you. But even as you did that, you weren't so aware of it then maybe as you are now. So as people are looking at this and to find what is the motivator, what is the way that they want to express themselves as they go on this journey, that it's okay. If maybe they don't know exactly, they don't have it defined. Uh, they don't know exactly why. If, if people think they know why, then I think they're deluding themselves. Mm. We don't have all the answers. And I think we, we use that, um, you know, that questioning mentality as an excuse or a crutch to not simply just do, right? Mm. Like we want to know where this is leading us, why we're doing it, what's going on. And I, you know, I feel inquiries like this all the time. You know, people who say, oh, I'm training for this race. Like what? What kind of, or, you know, I want to, you know, I always wanted to run a marathon. Like what kind of shoe should I get? Or what kind of, you know, what I need, I need the, the latest and the greatest heart rate monitor. Like what heart rate monitor should I get? And all of these questions are just, they're just reasons to not do. Like they want to know where this is leading, how exactly they're going to do it. Like, forget about all that. You don't need anything. Go outside and run in your bare feet if you have to. <laughs> That's all you need to know right now. And I think, you know, a lot of people, most people, uh, again, you know, because it's early January and this is like setting the setting goals kind of time of year, most people, unfortunately, are, are so disconnected from themselves that the goals that they pick are not the right goals yeah. because they don't know themselves. So, so what's less important or what's more important than the goal that one is setting for themselves 
is a commitment to better understanding who you are. So if you can find something that you enjoy doing that is underexpressed in your life, like maybe you like telling jokes, maybe you like painting, maybe you like writing poetry, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be tied to a career or a fitness thing. Just start doing more of that and listening to yourself. And I think if you can trust that that will lead you in a certain direction and divorce yourself from needing to know where that's going to lead you and why this is important or whether there's money or a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, forget about all of that and just try to embrace those things that bring you joy and happiness. Maybe there are things you did as a kid that you don't get to do anymore. It, it maybe you think they're too silly, whatever it is, just do more of that and let go of it needing to mean anything more than what it simply is. Uh, I so, so appreciate that. I was going to end by asking you about your own new year's resolutions, but I'm not, I'll just let that be the teaser <laughs> folks for show 529 coming up next, which is our habit show, which we're going to dive into. And, uh, I'll, I'll head the show off with that as we hit it. Rich, man, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, friends, what a great, incredibly inspiring story. I'm inspired to up the scope of my own journey as Rich so magnificently did. Again, you can connect with Rich at richroll.com and you'll want to check out again his new offering, meals.richroll.com. Let me tell you what's coming up next in show 529 after I thank a sponsor of today's show. Well, in our next episode, number 529, we follow the seven spokes of the Ziegler Wheel of Life and hear what habits Rich employs in his daily life for overall success. Some highlights. Uh, for a while, Rich journaled and what he did over every 15 minutes. I think he did it for a week. Every 15-minute block, he journaled what he did to discover where he was wasting time in his life so he could be more efficient. Uh, his morning time starts out pre-dawn and he feels it's his most creative time and sets a stage for the entire day. It's when he does a lot of his creative writing and even his book writing. Uh, in his early days as a corporate lawyer, he felt like an artist trapped in a lawyer's body. Uh, he believes we are all spiritual beings having a human experience and there's little in his life he gets more joy from than a bike ride, uh, which is interesting as that's part of his work as well. Well, till then, folks, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. <laughs> <laughs>